in a lot of your uh, material that I've seen has been a question that I keep asking myself. Yeah. If there's a con like a kind of the way you put it, like connected ways of thinking versus analytical ways of thinking or compartmentalizing ways of thinking, um, splitters and lumpers, you know, like mm -hmm. the lumpers who want to <laughs> lump everything together and the splitters who want to make distinctions. Uh, I think that is kind of true about the way people think. But I think it's also true that everyone has a bit of splitter and a bit of lumper in them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to tell stories about the world at all, right? Because we wouldn't be able to create meaning at all because the second you're making meaning, you're making distinctions of some kind, conceptual distinctions. So that's something humans have to do. Uh, but when we turn to history and we turn to the moment we're in now, you as a, a young Danish man who is practicing a kind of ancestral but modern cultural thing. What I wonder about is the role monotheism plays in this story, historically, going way, way, way back. Because on the one hand, I can easily create a historical story in my head, whereby there's a kind of poles. And culturally, you're at one pole, along with a lot of practice practitioners of pre-monotheist religions or things like Afro-Caribbean religion, which are monotheist, but then fill in that that monotheist uh, umbrella with a whole lot of loa and spirits and trees you can talk to and um, a living world. Angels, demons, saints, you name it, it's all there. So that's pretty easy to say, okay, that's animism, right? That's animism, but okay, we do have that little question mark of monotheism overarching it, right? Because all these Brazilians, presumably, are who do candomblé are Catholic. Same with people in Haiti who do voudon, they're Catholic. At the other pole of that imaginary um, binary, I'm putting evangel Lutherans, let's say, <laughs> right? And it's easy to see the, the contrast there. So the Lutherans, basically the world is dead. Uh, the only kind of living things are humans. They have souls. Animals are alive, but they don't have souls. Um, and they're actually humans are individuals in this really atomized sense. There's God, there's Jesus, there's humans. That's our relational thing. Quite verticalized, quite non-landscapey, quite distinction-y. There's the saved and the unsaved, right? These, these are like hard categories. Versus on the other end of the spectrum, the, the more flowing, connected way of thinking, right? Represented by you and Condomblé. However, it strikes me that there's a huge, huge middle ground on that binary. And uh, actually, on the Luther end of the binary, you might also want to put, uh, you know, atheist mechanism, right? Where everything is just stuff bumping into other stuff and that's it. That's an also a completely, like, non-relational in a certain way, way of being in the world. But I'm thinking, for example, of getting to Western esotericism, the example of Muslim intellectuals right through the Middle Ages until now, like until now in universities in Iran, you can study Mullah Sadra as a legitimate modern philosopher who has like the, probably the most authoritative philosophical teaching. And what is the, the worldview here? So you have a supreme God who is transcendently beyond everything in the creation, but the creation has a soul. It has a world soul. It also has a number of emanatory noes, nooses, like uh, akul, like the okal, these uh, 
into divine intellects that kind of come down and manifest the lower world. Then the world has a world soul. Then there are souls of all the planets. They're all living, intelligent beings. They have ruhaniyat. And then the world is full of jinn and angels. Uh, and shayatin, uh, you know. So this is an animist cosmos in a monotheistic worldview. And it's a, a high, it's like an elite animism. This is, this is what we get from the, the writings of um, very, very erudite, educated, scientifically educated, sometimes like people like proper astronomers who are maybe figuring out that the Earth moves around the sun like 200 years before Copernicus. Like this sort of, th this is animist, right? This is a super connective way of thinking. It's also Western esoteric way of thinking. But in your project, the, 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 the vibe of what you're into, and maybe this is just because you are a, a Norseman, you are from Northern Europe, like the vibe of it feels very folksy. So rune stones, uh, dancing around in a field, like getting grass on your feet and maybe having a fire and drinking some beer out of a horn, <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> someone sitting in like the cultured salons of Baghdad in the 14th century doing divination based on geomancy, based on this huge kind of like learned uh, astrological letterist synthesis of occult science. But both of them are super connective. Discuss. <laughs> discuss. Okay, cool. Oh, man, that's a lot of stuff to discuss here. Yeah, uh, uh, splitters and lumbers. Like my own intuition is totally to be a lumber totally to be a lumber and uh, i feel that uh i feel that uh, when we talk about making identifications or making distinctions i feel myself perhaps because i am a lumber that being a lumber is the most difficult thing uh, and you have to probably be a bigger genius than me to really be a really good lumber lumber uh, <laughs> but but um but yeah i think that that world use that, that they're all cosmologies let's call it cosmologies they you know, people living an instance of human culture somewhere, somehow, will always have, I think, aspects of both creating distinction and uh, creating association. When I look at this glass here that's standing on my table in front of me, then I need association in order to to identify the uh, the complex of sensory impression I get now from what I get now when I turn it around in order to basically construct this glass as an object that's association right i also need to be able to distinguish it from the, the the wood below it or from my hands that are holding it so i think on the deep epistemological uh level both both sort of functions are there and um i think that when thinking with particularly when thinking about the distinction uh, cosmology i think part of the advantage of that is that it underlines some similarities between Christianity, particularly reformed forms of Christianity and modernity. They are both very, very distinction. I think there are what I would call general leaning in the biblical tradition towards the distinction making. Stuff like God being extremely angry that the, the, the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, descends to marry the the daughters of man right and in fact he has 
probably history's biggest overreaction. He absolutely flips and decides that he wants to hold on to something, eradicate all life. That's his reaction to that piece of connectivity there. A piece of connectivity, which when you, if you look at Afro-Brazilian religion, is the very purpose of the whole thing. Right. Deities descending and marrying the daughters of man. So that is, and and so there's a very strong opposition between these two worldviews. And I see, for instance, I've been looking at Afro-Brazilian religion, and I see this tension play, playing out in very strong terms. For instance, the connector per se, which is the trickster issue, is often imaged with diabolical imagery. The the connectivity in itself identifies as diabolical when it faces into the a christian dominated space so how can these people also be christian well i think they can be christian because it is in the practice and when you are in the practice where you don't have to necessarily talk a lot about it then you can then you can hold contradictions in you so being a catholic christian uh, and also being a daughter or wife of a west african god those two things work can work so well together that the, that no contradiction is perceived at all i think a lot of human culture is works like that so when you are, are talking about north european and how uh, culture and how how uh, the stuff i'm talking about is is so uh, decidedly folksy <laughs> uh, then i think that yeah there is a lot of jumping around in 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 in, in flowery meadows and 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 uh, drinking beer at uh, standing stones and and these kind of things and to me it's almost a little bit of a problem because it ha- it 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 puts these things it or it, the danger is that it puts these things into this sort of nostalgic space where everybody are wearing uh folk costumes and playing violins and having you know um dried straw in their clogs and these kind of things right and that is not a very it, it it's an image that that risks pushing things out in this uh, rural nostalgic space that is not connective for people and if the point is to be connective then then you have to resist that somehow right and so i am trying in different ways to pull in another in, in in other directions but the thing is also that i think it is the kind of stuff that is there in northern europe like scandinavia is this weird mix between being very very decidedly modernist almost a bit like france you know this kind of laicite ideology you have to be modern you know, yeah. on the one side. But then on the other side, there's these kind of things. If, if you go around in the corners of Scandinavia, you find these these, these amazing things. And a friend of mine, Olle, he lives in Herjadalen in northern Sweden, where they kept this bare totemism alive almost down to our day through the 20th century, putting on bear masks and dancing around. And, like, it's, and, and the whole thing is, it looks very probably going to choose some problematic words here, but it looks very quote unquote indigenous or something like that. Right. So, so, so Scandinavia has this sort of 
tradition of of folksy stuff. I think if I was an Iranian, I would probably be digging that stuff for there sure. that you, you spoke about. For sure. I, I don't I don't even know know that from before. What was the name? Mu Mullah Sodra. He's like a Enlightenment era. Let's call him uh, Islamic yeah. theologian philosopher who synthesizes a lot of the stuff that we dig in Islam, yeah. like Ibn Arabi. Um, yeah, the 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 cool shit, the cool shit, the the late Platonist, Aristotelian metaphysics, the divinatory stuff, Suhravardi, everything goes into the pot, and it's it's a it's a very procline, a very kind of universalist, but also extremely detailed cosmology where everything is just a web of interconnections, um, and everything is agentive, you know, from from the rocks and trees up to the planets, up to God himself and all his angels and uh, humans can interact with that whole network so it's not just knowledge about it's also a participatory knowledge about and this guy Mullah Sadra is insofar as there is a kind of um, Shiite orthodoxy in Iran which there kind of is insofar as it's the Islamic Republic and there are official Mm -hmm. interpreters right so there is kind of something like orthodoxy he is the gold standard he is the guy you do not argue with so this is like um, a kind of institutionalized, full panoply Western esoteric tradition that is at the heart of uh, Iran in, in the universe. Oh, it's extremely interesting. It's extremely interesting. And I think that, that the, those, the distinction-based cosmologies have – they've taken different – ways of yeah. entering into connection with existing animist systems and developing their own connectivity and but I think that Protestantism or Reformed Christianity is a very radical uh, move towards distinction yeah. uh, distinction based way so, of, of being in the world. So what do you make of a Jakob Böhme who's a good Lutheran or a William Blake? who is a good dissenting Protestant. Because these guys are super animist, maybe. And they're... Yeah. So it's like it's almost like the hydra-headed animism is springing up within the sterile soil of uh, Lutheranism and, and, you know, sort of like... I think animism has incredible capacity to be reinvented in so many ways. Like, the, part of... I, I think what I learned from the Afro-Brazilians is that, that uh, for instance, Catholic material is fertile ground. You, like, you, you, can, you can link with that. If you look at Scandinavian history, you can see that people are using Catholic saints in, in more or less, not exactly, but a similar ways as voodoo practitioners or condomly practitioners are using Catholic saints as ways of manifesting their gods. Wow. Um, and I think that, that these, I think that h- humans basically are wonderfully inconsistent and, and, and don't necessarily, like we have these contradictions in us and animism, animist ways of practicing or knowing or being have a thing of trying to come through in, in, in different, in different ways. Um, I, I think that like, 
I, I mentioned before the, the the marriage of the the sons of God and the daughters of man. If you have a devout Christian, such as Santa Caterina, who used to whip herself with iron chains to come in a shamanic trance so she could have sex with Jesus Christ, and then her mortal coil became so sanctified that they're still worshipping her head down in the, in the cathedral in Siena. Well, it's not only metal, it's animist, it's hardcore <laughs> animist way of being, you know. And I know a story from Sweden where a, a man in deep Christian piety in the Middle Ages promised Saint Eric that he would, uh, they, or asked for uh, to be cured. And when he was cured, his way of thanking Saint Eric was he went up to Uppsala, the ancient heathen sacred site, and sacrificed a horse to Saint Eric. I, I totally love these sorts of what you call trickster ambiguities that are that, or that trickster ambiguity with which animist ways of, of practicing have a tendency of, of pushing itself into more normative knowledge hierarchies. But I think particularly the combination of Protestantism and nationalism, that has been a very perhaps even a uniquely strong sort of non-animist composition of, of thinking. But Word. even, even you know, like my, my family background, I come from a kind of Christianity that's called Grundvedianism in, in, in Denmark, uh, which was a nationalist form of Christianity. And they were totally into Nordic stuff. They even said that the Elder Edda, the Viking poems and all that, that was our Old Testament. So it's kind of a half step to actually becoming an actual neo-pagan uh, in this Christianity. But still, I, I would say that stuff like that, it sort of revels in, in that thing a little bit. My grandmother would read Nordic myths to me, but, you know, we wouldn't go out and put milk at a stone or something like that. Right. You know? Wouldn't do that. And And I think that's perhaps part of the explanation for how what a kind of non-animist space it's been made. It's actually taking in animist aspects and sort of making them into perhaps the farce, you know, nationalist self-narrative or something like that. Yeah, denaturing de, de them, domesticating them, yeah. taking ideas yeah. and Mes just keeping... Exactly. You keep Mes the Norse myths because they're cool stories, which they are, yeah. of course, like some of the coolest mm. stories ever, but you don't do any of it. You don't actually, yeah. you know... Yeah. Um, Although it's also a medieval tendency that we see in Scandinavia as well, because I've seen uh, a manuscript in Oxford. I can't remember the name of the manuscript, but it was a uh, codex, vellum codex, that had a genealogy of some kingly line. You know, the, the medieval Norse seem to have been really into their genealogies to the point where, like, let's enshrine this in oral tradition so everyone kind of knows whose family is what. And th but this had, the page that this was on, had... A, a giant Christ crucified in the middle of the page with all these names duh, 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 going down both sides of him, which are all king names. One of the kings is Odin, mm. you know. So yeah. this is Christianity, but Odin is he's yeah. in, he's in the the story. It's so important to, although we're stuck with categories, to when when talking about things like animism and connective ways of thinking versus something. Yeah, and then we might say like mainstream culture or something like that, but it's. You know, the idea that that's mainstream culture is super, super, super recent. That's mm. the thing to keep in mind. This, this dead nature, dead universe, yeah. atomized humans existing in little individual 
monads floating around in this universe. This is like ultra, ultra modern stuff. You do not find it if you go back in time before no. the no. Protestant Reformation. So that's no. really important to keep in mind. But it's yeah. also important to keep in mind that even when you have something like Protestantism, it's going to just be porous and crumbly at the edges and all kinds of interesting stuff will creep into it. Yeah. Um, like when, when, when I read uh, folklore... Uh, there's a particular folklore collection uh, here from southern Scandinavia. Uh, you actually see the tension between the animist realities and the uh, the uh, Christian, kind of the normative Christianity. You see it quite a lot. I mean, people, of course, had their elves and their gnomes and their little trolls and all these kind of things. But Christianity uh, often poses a resistance to that. Uh, so there's also there are also cases where you have this or that pastor who is perhaps engaging some of this stuff in in, in more positive ways or less uh, sort of judgmental ways. But if you take a traditional knowledge perspective, then the traditional knowledge itself has a lot of stories. I could go on for a long time about how there is some sort of opposition to Christianity. Actually, um, interesting. Interesting. The, the, I think, in to take a local example from where I live, of the Green Man, and I'm sure you're mm. familiar with the Green Man as a motif. Yep. He's like the the, along with the Sheila Nagig that we find in Irish churches. He's this uh, motif. He's a face made out of leaves, and you find him carved in many churches around where we live. There's tons of Green Men carved out of granite on, especially on the ceiling bosses of churches, and the idea that this is pagan you know the sort of witch cult in western europe style idea like this is pagan stuff that survived into christianity well we don't have any evidence for that what we have is the evidence that this is christian culture medieval christian culture and so that was you know if you'd gone and asked those guys are you pagans they would have said if they if if they knew what the hell you were talking about they would have said of course not definitely you know? not yeah yeah, yeah sure uh, yeah. <laughs> are you christian hell yeah of course yeah, exactly are. So what's with the green man? And then you might have entered into that kind of, well, we don't really ask ourselves that question territory. It's just something we do. Yeah. It's part of our expression, you know. And this is, I think, what you're talking about here, this is part of the reason that if you want to think in decolonial ways about European knowledge tradition and European knowledge systems, then moving away from the ancient heathendom and moving into thinking with animism is really functional because yeah it's very possible that a figure such as the green man or all many of all these folkloric figures that are found all over the place that 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 they can't sometimes be scribed be projected back into a continuity with heathen religiosity but nobody can deny that that there's an animist motive for it's an sure. animist motive. And animism is something that's very dynamic and transformative. It transforms through the ages and gets different expressions. There are loads of, for instance, local spirits. There are even cases where we know that this local spirit, it must have been identified with Odin at some point in history because the mount that it's living in is basically called Odin's Mount. But then through history, it changed nature, and and now they call it something else, right? Or you have stuff like 
a very good example, I think, of these very transformative nature of um, of animist practices is stuff like sacred trees. Mm. Uh, you can read in the sagas that Norwegians moved to Iceland and immediately started treating many parts of the landscapes as sacred. And there were rituals in order to sacralize it and that whole thing. So it wasn't, you know, they weren't there before, but they started doing it. And trees, sacred trees, is an extremely important sort of landscape connectedness part of, focused part of animism in northern europe but it's also dynamic it seems to be emerging it seems to be emerging all the time and even today it's there somehow there's this thing about trees and special trees here and there or trees that are connected to a specific person perhaps planted when the person was born or something like that right and then it becomes an important tree perhaps for, for a whole farm or if you go a little bit back in history that particular was a troll birch or something like that and really sacred important to give it offerings all the time then perhaps christian people moved into the farm and the father he then takes a silver bottom puts it into his his uh, rifle and shoots that demonic thing and then uh, of course the farm collapses completely and everything go, goes to shit so uh, so there, there are these very transformative parts of 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 animism that are basically there kind of morphing and rolling along Stuff like, let me give you another example, is lighting lights at Christmas. Probably, most likely, an ancient, ancient tradition, probably pre-Christian. Some of the stuff that, for instance, we do in, in Denmark is stuff that, for instance, we have a tr tradition that's called Santa Lucia. Uh, and it's actually celebrated on St. Lucy's Day on the 13th, 13th of, of uh, December. It looks super medieval. It's like girls who are carrying uh, candles and singing. Looks like it's a Catholic thing, but it's less than 70 years old. Really? came to Denmark during the Second, Second World War. And that version was sor sort of a... It came from Sweden, and that was sort of a nationalist, domesticated version of some earlier stuff that was going on, on which was the looser processions. That was much more like carnivalesque, uh, sexual behavior, transsexual motifs, all these kind of things. But the carrying of light is there. It's transformed into our, our age. And so you find, when you look with animism, you find sometimes motifs that look like they are simultaneously ancient, but very new right. at the same time. And I think that's an insight into how we need to think about this stuff. You know, the, when we look at the history of animism in any cultural sphere, we don't want to import ideas about cultural authenticity or cultural purity because people are always making stuff up on the fly and um you know so the idea that like neo-pagan revival stuff is either fake or it's authentic based on these or those criteria is just not a uh, old school way of thinking mm -hmm. you know people yeah. weren't, weren't asking about the questions of like cultural authenticity and stuff back in the day uh, and no. if you you know if you look at uh, sacred tree culture in places like the Balkans or the, the Near East, where you have, you know, these trees that have all these rags fluttering on them, because people have this tradition of tying a rag onto the tree when they visit that site for some reason. In the Balkans, this is a, Christians, Jews, and Muslims will all do the thing on the tree. Mm -hmm. So they're all agreeing that, you know, this is a site of importance. And the, the important thing to do is put this rag there. How long has that been going on? Who knows? 
but it's it's a genuine kind of just naturally arising uh, cultural thing. And so then when I think of um, maypole dancing, so in the the, yeah. the next town down the road from us, they have a, a Mayfair and it's been going on since I think the 60s. And they have a May Queen. A, a good friend of mine was actually the May Queen in the back in the 60s. One year, it's, a, it's like a pretty young girl from the village who, for whatever reason, they decided is going to be the May Queen that year. And they put her in this bower and carry her around the village and stuff. So this, you know, the Maypoles, we know, is an old English custom that the Puritans stamped out as pagan idolatry. And it's been revived, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not, it doesn't feel heathen. No one does anything. No one, no one's like, you know, uh, getting drunk or entering altered states of consciousness or doing any kind of unseemly subversive stuff. No one's like... Yeah, cross-dressing or or car- there's no carnival aspect to it. It's it has a kind of get-together aspect. It's like a lo- hopefully a lovely sunny day in May. You get together. There's a big procession. Everyone's outside, but it's all very genteel. It still feels authentic to me. It still feels like a real ritual action in the community. If you see what I mean. Yeah, totally. And and I think that when we're talking about these sort of traditions, often our uh, immediate inclination would be to to start speculating about how old is it. And the older it is, sort of the, the, the better the authentic, the it, authentic is, yeah. it is, right? And But the facts are that that these traditions are transformative and they move quite a lot, actually. And like maypoles, uh, they've also been using maypoles all over Scandinavia, and I'm not sure that they can be. I'm not. I'm not sure that they're and that they can be documented as being pre-Christian. They certainly look very pre-Christian. Sometimes they can also be given kind of anthropomorph shape, so it's actually kind of an image that's being wow. danced around or something like that. But from one perspective, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. are cool. You know what? What more do you need? And I think it's a very beautiful example of this sort of transfer of tradition going on here in Scandinavia now and that is the importation of North American Halloween because the thing is that we used to do very very similar things even like trick-or-treating or carving face-shaped lamps out of I think we used to use beets I remember yeah. doing that as a child carving these lamps out of beets but that but it kind of disappeared that tradition but then what Scandinavian culture is then or danish culture is then doing is what human culture often does it looks around and sees something that looks like it's from somewhere else it might not really be very different from what we used to do but it looks other yeah. and that thing that it looks other that kind of makes it appealing perhaps because it is actually very typical of here as well somehow so all of a sudden woof, we have north american halloween just within the last 15 years interesting halloween has just become uh, it, it actually i think it has it has superseded it has pressed out another carnival tradition that we have had since the middle ages which is the uh, fest laun which is actually carnival it is, it's kind of kind of a german german tradition of, of carnival that we've we've had here and it seems to me that halloween is kind of eclipsing our traditional uh, carnival celebration a little bit because now people do get the chance of wearing weird costumes or children do right yeah uh, so and that i think i find that that particular exchange to be very organic and beautiful and meaningful and because it's 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 culture enriching culture or or spaces enriching each other with culture i'm glad you feel that way because i'm a big fan of halloween as well but um another way you can take that is like 
American cultural hegemony, global, like when American, and this has happened with American Christmas as well, when American holidays go global, the argument can be made that it sucks that that happens. You know, yeah. Like, if, and, so and for example, perhaps sometimes it does. I just don't think it's the case with Halloween. I think it's wonderful. Awesome. But, you know, what I'm what I'm thinking of is like, what if the Day of the Dead in Mexico got replaced by Halloween? What a loss would that be to world culture? Do you know that I mean? would be an amazing loss. But what is happening with Day of the Dead from Mexico is that that is also moving around the world. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so we have uh, here in Denmark. Uh, the, the, actually, there's been I, and I. I hope it will consolidate, but but I, I I fear that it's it's falling a little bit out of practice again. But there was a couple of years where there was a little bit of a feeling that that the whole Day of the Dead thing was kind of moving in, sort of in the slipstream of North American Halloween. But Day of the Dead, interestingly, was not called Halloween. Like my little girl, she calls she doesn't call Halloween all hallows in our own language. She calls it Halloween, whereas Day of the Dead was translated into our own language. So we called it Day of the Dead, and then it was considered a little bit of an intellectual thing. It was like churches who had little uh, lectures or um, poetry readings and these kind of things. So it was as if the Day of the the Dead's kind of symbolism kind of took up a little bit of a different cultural space. And... And and the Day of the Dead itself is is a mind blowing kind of cauldron of different mm. uh, aspects of culture. Beautiful culture. They dress up as these butterflies whose migration at that time of year comes to symbolize the uh, movement of, of of the dead souls and so on. So cool. You know that the word in ancient Greek for soul and butterfly are the same. No, no, I didn't. So oh, wow! It means butterfly yeah, and yeah. soul. I'm with you that that is a fascinating and to be celebrated movement, but maybe that's just because both of us dig Halloween and Day of the Dead as, you know, incredibly metal and cool holidays. So this conversation has been extremely interesting to me. And I think both of us have no interest in entering into the sewer of identity discourse and even race discourse. But there, there is something that's very interesting to me that I wanted to ask you. So... In, in your kind of um, quasi-manifesto for Nordic animism, you talk about some position statements. One, we unilaterally reject racism. Like it. Okay. Two, we embrace history, uh, claiming indigeneity risks, subsuming a kind of ownership that could reject a large segment of descendants of Europeans outside of Europe from the right to this knowledge. Now, is it only descendants of Europeans outside of Europe who have the right to this knowledge? And what I'm thinking of, right, is uh, in the same way that you guys can genuinely get into Halloween and dig it and to just make it your own and totally, I'm sure Halloween in Denmark is killer. At least there'll be some cool part of some village or some part of Copenhagen where it's awesome. Um what about some like black dude in North America whose co- whose culture is North American, right? So landscape wise, there's plenty of trees, there's plenty of cold, there's plenty of. He's like from Minnesota, somewhere like that, right? 
And he, when he was a kid, his parents read him this book of Norse mythology and he just totally r- dug on it. Yeah. He was like, yeah, man, this is, these stories yeah, are amazing. Yeah. And he just feels that he's, he's from like this frosty place with trees and he feels this connection to this Northern landscape. It's all, his culture is, you know, people are going to expect he somehow has magically has this African culture because he's from an African background, but of course he doesn't because he didn't grow up in Africa. Can this guy not legitimately claim this knowledge? Totally. Totally. And, and sometimes my language on this moment, on this uh, matter, has been a little bit unclear. Part of the reason is that I actually really wanted to, to speak to Euro descendants, uh, the people that are normally uh, racialized as white people, because these are people who I think need uh, to deal with these things. And, and there's such a lot of dealing with whiteness and blah, blah, blah. And these people are also... Um, uh, in need, I think, of these sort of roots right. culture. However, notice that the, the concept Euro descendant is inclusive, more inclusive than white. You mm. can be black and Euro descendant, or you can be black racialized and Euro descendant because you actually have Euro European ancestors. Most African Americans would have European ancestors. That's true. But that doesn't even matter that much. Who gives a fuck if you have a part of your genome that actually comes from this or that? part of the world it is an essentially flawed and racist line of logic that that would make that into an important or make that into a criteria for either either excluding or including someone some someone right so i think that euro descended cultural heritage because of course we can label it like that is an available language to create counter-modern ways of decolonizing people today in the world. And in that sense, it's very parallel, actually, to Afro-descendant uh, similar languages, like the ones I've been studying, Sant- Santeria, Candomblé, Voodoo, these kind of things, which are today also being very much practiced by uh, people who would normally be racialized as white. Hmm. If you look at uh, Afro-Brazilian religion, then it, it has been moving south in, so- in South America. It's been moving to parts of Brazil, where most people are white, even moving into uh, Argentina. Um, It has been established in Europe. There's a Condomblé temple in Berlin. And I think this is part of different ways of posing counterpoints in ways of knowing to modernity that are being made available in the world today. And the fact that many say, African-Americans might diverge towards African-American traditions, I, I, I think that's, that, that, that shouldn't, or that many white racialized people might diverge towards Eurocentric tradition. I don't think that should necessarily lead us to assume identitarianism. So that's, that's important to... It's a, it's it's a delicate line you're walking there. You know, it it's is, a very delicate line, but I, I, I feel like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just hope people get the, the message that like, in some ways, this is it can be seen as a very simple message, like, do what feels real to you, do what you're into, just get just do it, you know, it's yeah. like there's this, um, this, uh, to, 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 to bring in a very, very scholarly example, there's a video I saw on YouTube where Lemmy from Motorhead was answering some question that this black dude had written him, he's saying like, dear Lemmy, I really dig Motorhead, but all my friends think I'm like being a sellout because I'm listening to Motorhead instead of whatever our yeah. black community is supposed to listen to. And then he was like, like, fucking don't listen to them. Just dig what you dig, you know? So yeah, yeah, words yeah. of wisdom from Lemmy. Lemmy. In a certain <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, definitely, definitely. 
Okay. Uh, and, and yeah, th- th- there is a balancing there because on one level, I do want to speak to your descendants. I sense, particularly in uh, North America, an enormous craving for yes. roots culture. Yes. And I think that outlining these paths for your descendants is incredibly important. Part of the reason being that we have been some of the most destructive groups of people in, in history. And uh, in, in North America, a lot of people are, or uh, many people are starting to think in decolonial terms with your descendants. There's a, a course uh, that's running, uh, which is called White Awake, where uh, this course is basically trying to platform indigenous voices, trying to basically guide or supervise white people reflecting on how to recover cultures of, of land connectedness and Word. these sort of things. So Interesting. these these trends are very much there among among your descendants who really need it. And this is also part of this thing about claiming a specific authenticity and indigeneity in these things. It's important to avoid, for instance, identifying stuff like Nordic animism as indigenous. Because if it's supposed to be indigenous, then I have communicated that I'm perhaps more authentic in doing it than you, right? Right. Because you come from North America or something like that. Yeah. Then already there, we, we, we're, we're kind of balancing on some fucking blue and Borden shit, like, yeah. and I think that the diaspora, the settler populations of your descendants, I think they are extremely important because they are the ones that are m- the most meshed into the profound problems of our time, both the problems of living on land that has been genocided, living in very hardcore identitarianisms from both right and also sometimes from the left, dealing with understanding themselves as creolized. And and I think that that very intense cultural cocktail, Americans, they're meshed into that. And that's why I I think that like they are, it's actually from that part, that side of the world that a lot of the real answers are going to emerge. Hmm. I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I'm culturally unambiguous. I, I you know, I'm just Danish. Story, <laughs> but but most people in the world today are in some sort of remove from where their grandparents lived. Yeah, and it's it's really really important to create concepts that that reaches out to these people and doesn't create create these folkish, you know nationalist idiocies and, and th- that's the reason i use the word traditional a lot traditional knowledge yeah. because it doesn't imply any that that you know you're still li- living in that same spot as your grandparents right um interesting it's it's a tough one as well as well though because the term traditional in a in a very very narrow but very important western esoteric context can imply the traditionalist school of yeah. René Guénon et al. Where, exactly. Where it isn't Radical traditionalist. Yeah. yeah. Which is, if, if one thing that is, is ultra, ultra modern. You know, if, if whatever else you want to say about it, it is not traditional in this sense of like cultural yeah. continuity from genuine historical currents, cultural currents. Exactly. It's, it's like a exactly. made up modern reaction to modernity. Yeah, yeah. 
exactly and therefore it's not particularly traditional in a sense no like traditional is transformative it's not this uh but and actually that's part that's ex exactly what you're saying there is part of why i like traditional and that is because the word traditional holds in it sort of a cultural struggle of realizing that it means some almost in some sense almost the opposite of what some people thinks it means people think that that traditionalism means conservatism but it might as well mean exactly the opposite you know and it doesn't mean static it means transformational i i realize that there's a problem with radical traditionalism and sort of playing up against that but i have sort of resolved that okay that's a, that's one that you have to take that's a, that's a fight you have to take you know? um okay because because yeah. you need the term i like it um yeah and and term seems to, to be able to be a channel for that cultural struggle doctor at the risk of taking us from what I think is a very important and sort of high-level discourse. Let's do it. Global popular culture. I have a few quick questions for you. What do you think of Heilung? Uh, I know them. Uh, I think uh, I, I like the fact that they are, um, that they are working with um, trying to become ritual they're trying to make their performances into rituals. So in a sense, they're trying to change from a performing mode to a doing mode. I would have some suggestions for how to do that in different ways to them. <laughs> cool. uh, but yeah, I think that's, I think they could become much, they could become much more powerful in a sense if they handled their, they're ritualizing in ways that were more attuned with how rituals work. Okay. Midsummer, the folk horror movie. Uh, ah, yeah. I actually liked it. Cool. <laughs> Do you know the club that they hit him in with a head? That club is real. Okay. Yeah, that existed. Okay. <laughs> like they, they, they call it, they call it, I, I even have an image of it somewhere. They call it at the club ban. The family cl club, so it has a long, uh, has a long uh, handle. So more than one person could hold it when you knock the old person down. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely insane? Wow. Anyway, okay. One last uh, pop culture question for you: Marvel Thor. Um, and I'm thinking here because so I've been recently exposed to the Marvel comics cinema universe where you have thor and the avengers and all this kind yeah. of stuff because i have a little boy but i grew up on these like vintage 1960s jack kirby comic books of thor in which kirby creates this totally weird universe where asgard is a real place there's these guys there they're the gods but they're kind of just like aliens so they sort of have science and magic and it's the same thing and you never actually come down on either side and all the stories from the sagas are somehow integrated into these like cheesy comic scenarios. So you have like the Midgard serpent, you have the Ragnarok, etc., etc., all the way down, and it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I I'm ambiguous about the Marvel Thor. On the one hand, I really love that sort of explosive creativity of being extremely popular, and I actually um. Like the, 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 the latest or the, the last uh, couple of movies that came out, particularly the second to last, I 
really, really loved it. I thought it was so hilarious. Uh, the one that begins with uh, Led Zeppelin, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I thought that, I mean, that whole scene was just hilarious. And I, I actually love the way that, that uh, Chris Helmsworth is making Thor into this, this humoristic yet extremely powerful uh, thing. I have a problem. That is that uh, they tend to fall back on the distinction-based cosmos <laughs> imagery of the gods and their opponents as, as good and evil where the actual wisdom of, for instance, the Ragnarok story is that the war between the gods and their others, the giants or the Jotnar, that is actually the collapse of connectedness in the world. And if you look at how mythology is actually phrasing the relations, then it's these webs of connectedness between the gods and the demons, the trolls, the, the the giants, the others, right? So they're marrying each other. They're making babies. They're identifying with each other. They're sharing knowledge with each other. They're also fighting and they have this, all these kind of tense relations. They're seducing each other, making uh, social contracts, employing each other, all kinds of, of relations. But they break down in absolute confrontation in the Ragnarok. And I have a little bit of a problem when popular culture only sees that last bit because that means that it's basically it, it's sort of falling into the, the the mode of seeing it only with the Christian eye which is the, the absolute uh, confrontation between God and the other or the gods and the other but I actually made at some point I actually made a little video that was a video letter to Taika Waititi and Chris Helmsworth where I said something along the lines of Guys, I think it's wonderful that you're standing down there in Australia and you're kissing the indigenous babies and you're showing your socially responsible profile. And I'm going to give you the chance to also do that with the, with the, uh, the story that you're telling because I'm an authentic Viking. And should, so I, I, I told them they should uh, platform me so uh, my uh, so my, my work could get a little bit more of exposure. And I actually know, for long-winded reasons, that my video did reach Taika Waititi, but he didn't, he didn't want to touch that wasp nest. So whatever it's called. That's too bad. That's too bad. Um, it might still happen. Perhaps. Listen, I, I feel what you're saying, but... And that maybe this could be our final thing to talk about. Uh, Loki, right? Yeah. Loki, because of who Loki is in the myths and in the Marvel thing, he's part Jotun, part Aesir, however you say it. He's... Uh, never good and never evil. He always switches. The only thing you can rely on him to do is just as his uh, evil plan is about to succeed, he switches sides. Or just as his good plan is about to succeed, he switches sides. So he is this like irreducible trickster element in the stories that still shows up in the Marvel stuff, right? He's always trying to betray everyone, including himself. Like in the Marvel, I think they've got that about Loki, you know? So, mm. so that... Uh, you can't like no matter how hard you try, you can't, it, you can't just reduce him to a bad guy. Totally not. Yeah, which maybe is the saving grace of that whole thing because he's such a good character. The yeah, figure of Loki. Yeah, yeah. He's just irreducibly cool. Uh, yeah, 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, Loki in Nordic mythology is an absolutely amazing phenomenon. I mean, there's yeah. some people who said it's, who said that it's, it's probably an, an um, medieval invention, uh, literary invention, and I totally don't believe it for the sheer reason that who the fuck would ever invent if you wanted to make a credible mythology that you were inventing who would invent something as far out as that figure and he's actually i think he's he's very comparable to the west african trickster Eshu, hmm. uh in that he's he's actually very foundational for how things works and that is a deeply connective element in that cosmology the trickster the transgressor the one that steps over the lines and back that that is the one who makes anything in the world basically happen right and when when you read the nordic mythology you know there's a myth where loki is the one that makes it happen that all the different gods get their weapons or insignia yeah. so Odin gets his spear and Thor's get his hammer and so on, meaning that he's, it's almost as if he's creating the nature of the gods somehow. Mm. So he's, he's, uh, he's uh, a deep, I think, I think a very, very important aspect. Like when you look at the mythology, you also see that the myths, oftentimes they begin with him doing something transgressive or trickstery somehow, which means that, the mythology in itself, it's almost as if it springs from the trickster agency of Loki. Yeah. There is a stasis. The world is dead and static in some, I don't know, sphere. But then the trickster does something crazy. And then the world kind of manifests out of that or the world is produced. Reality is born from that initial trickster initiative. Right. And the fact that right at the beginning of things in some telling, and you probably actually know the sources, you know, because we, we tend to think of, or I tend to think of Norse mythology as a canon based on like Dolaire's book of Norse myths that I read when I was a kid, you know, which don't cite any, like, this is from this Edda, but this is from this other saga and this, but, but um, Odin and Loki, when they first meet, they become blood brothers. And this is like before the whole story of the rise and fall of Asgard and the, the whole kind of um, Asgard, like the, 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 the new gods building Asgard and um, interacting with humans and creating the, the, the world order. So it's like right at the beginning of things, Loki and Odin have shook hands and it's like, okay, we're brothers now. And, you know, yeah. one reading of that is like, Odin, you really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <It was laughs> because you can draw a direct line from that to the Ragnarok. On the other hand, it's profoundly cool and deep and meaningful that the trickster's there at the beginning and, and that the the god of Odin, I mean, Odin is very multifaceted, but he is associated with writing. He's associated with uh, knowledge, right? He knows the future. He has wisdom. He's been to see Mimir and uh, made the sacrifice he needed to get get true wisdom. That guy is brothers with the just agent of chaos who's gonna yeah. who's gonna tear it all yeah. down for the, f yeah. the heck of it kind of thing uh. <laughs> totally totally i recommend by the way talking about popular culture uh american gods i i really uh love gaiman's portrayal of odin or i will almost call it a reinvention of odin as kind of an an american figure 
I think that's absolutely wonderful. They were made into TV series recently, and um, I think uh, some really problematic things, unfortunately, started to happen in those um, in, in the later seasons, where things started to become very identitarian somehow. And it kind of came from a good place. I think it came from the uh, idea of wanting to support stuff like the Black Lives Matter movement and these kind of things. But it just came out in in a, a very unfortunate identitarian ways. But anyway, American Gods, the the Odin, and I think also Loki. Yeah, Loki also plays a role in that one. So definitely also <laughs> worth uh, worth checking out. Cool, Rune. Thank you so much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Stay esoteric. You're welcome. <laughs>